All right, well, it is, um, it's a privilege to be able to speak to you and to open scriptures with you. So um, we have a lot to do and a lot to get through, and we're not going to come close to exhausting the subject. Um, I'm going to probably take criticism from a couple of different places when we get through this talk, because people are going to say, we didn't talk about this, you should talk about that. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that this is, I'm going to say what I think is most important. The title we have is A Call to Movement. I'm only going to say what I believe is most important in order to provoke you, use a good biblical word, to provoke you to move. So that, that's my goal. And um, for a fuller treatment, and, um, and we all need a fuller treatment of this, I'm going to encourage you to read a book that I read just this week. And I think it's one of the more helpful books I've read in a long time. I don't want to say ever, but it's, it's great pastoral theology, all right? So I believe this ought to be in every home in our church. I, I would have husbands and wives, mothers and fathers read this book if I could. It's easy to read. Um, I, I bought the Kindle version, um, which was cheaper, and the print was a lot bigger, all right? So I got to wear my glasses when I read this, all right? So I won't be reading out of this to you this morning, but... Um, you can get a hold of this. You can download it right now on your Kindle. We have copies of it for $13 a pop um, that will be available on all of our campuses, um, wherever you are. We got copies of this available. We'd love for you to get this in your hands. You can get it at bookstores. You can get it um, here in town at any of our Christian bookstores, um, Crossway. You can go grab a copy of it, get them to order it for you, however you want to get it. I want to encourage you to get it. I think it'd be real helpful. It is a very helpful, thorough treatment of what it means to fight for purity uh, with the power of grace. All right? So that's the subtitle. It's a great subtitle. Here's what I want to tell you. In the 12 years that I've been a part of Grace Church, we have taught publicly on this subject in a very detailed way for men three or four times. I'm pretty sure it's four. I went back and checked, and we hide some of those talks because we said some things that were pretty crazy while we were learning to talk about it. And so um, you can't find them unless you download it. And if you did, then if you tell us you have it, we'll probably come destroy your hard drive. But... Um, we've done this a lot, and here's what I'll tell you, is that every time that we have done it, under the sound of our voices as we were teaching and sitting in our groups, were men who were at that moment destroying their lives with these very sins. Men who were on our staff, who were destroying their lives and their families. Young men who were a part of our church, who were destroying their lives and subjecting themselves to public shame and a lifetime of consequences. In those 12 years, from men who were a part of this group, I had to quit thinking about it because I started getting too discouraged and I didn't want to dump all of that on all of you who were under the sound of my voice this week. Okay, so here's, but here's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to feel an edge and an earnestness about this because I am tired of watching men destroy themselves and destroy the people that love them. It is wearisome. I'm tired of being in that meeting. I've been in those meetings this year. And the sad truth is I'll probably be in those meetings next year. At one point when I was early on in my career, if we can call it that, as a pastor, my dad said to me, he's like, buddy, you sure you want to do this for the rest of your life? He's like, because everywhere you go, it seems like this mess is following you around. Maybe God's trying to tell you something. 
And so maybe it is just following me around, or maybe it's just everywhere. Maybe it's everywhere, and if you're willing to turn over the rocks and to look, it's what you're going to find. And so I want to tell you, there is an edge about it. There is a seriousness to it, because I know that on our different campuses where we are covering this subject, that in the room, listening to the sound of my voice, there are men who within the next 24 months are going to be a subject of public disgrace. I know that. I'm not wondering about it. I'm not questioning it. I'm telling you it is a fact. Some of you are sitting next to that man. Some of you are that man. And we have to move. We have to get that. We all think that the sin that we are playing with is a tool that we are using to accomplish some purpose in our lives, whether it's escape or excitement or some sense of entitlement that we have because our wife, we perceive, is not meeting our needs, and so it's understandable. I've heard all of those reasons. I've seen how all of that plays out, and I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, sin is not a tool that you can use to accomplish your purposes. It is a master that hates you and wants to drag you into the pit of hell. That is a fact, and if you try to use it as a tool, ultimately, you will be the tool. You will be the instrument, not only of your own destruction, but of the destruction of the people who are closest to you. Because if we go back to the Chernobyl illustration of last week, and we see who are the people who suffered the most for the meltdown at the Chernobyl nuclear facility, it was the people who benefited most from it when it was functioning properly. And it's the same way with your sexuality. There are people that God will use that energy to bless, and they are near to you. And if that energy gets outside the boundaries for which it was created and for the purposes that God designed it for, then they are the people who will be destroyed. It is a rule. It is a law. You cannot avoid it. Your intentions are irrelevant. It is not a tool that you can use. It is your master, and it will turn you into a tool that it uses to accomplish its purposes of destroying the image of God in the earth. And so they're really... Just a handful of big ideas that we're going to hit, all right? Everybody got their seatbelt on? Right, you can feel it, can't you? Here we go. First of all, since the fall, we are all idol makers. Since the fall into sin, not talking about autumn, we're talking about the fall, the fall, capital T, capital F. Since the fall into sin, since Adam and Eve fell. Our first father was passive, did not take responsibility to lead, to represent God in the world. And as a result, he and his wife and then the world that he was responsible for were plunged from a place of glory into a place of brokenness and shame. That is the world that we are living in. And since that time, We are all, human beings are all born idol makers. John Calvin, great theologian, said the human heart is an inveterate idol factory. You can't cure it. We produce idols, that's what we do. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. We have these texts that are in your notes. My people have committed two sins. Prophet Jeremiah speaking for God. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is what he says. 
He's saying that God is saying, I am a spring of living water. I am a constant source of renewable life. And my people have said, rather than have a living spring, we'd rather go dig a hole that has a hole in it. And we'll keep trying to fill it up to get what we need. And it's going to keep leaking out and draining. Rather than coming to God, we'll go to anything else, even things that don't work right for us, that don't work well for us. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. God, see how God is posturing himself. He's crying out and he's calling. He says, is anyone thirsty? Are you thirsty? Do you have unmet needs? Come and drink, even if you have no money. He's gracious. He says, come to me. I have what you need. Don't need anything from you. Come to me. This is the posture of God. Come to me. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? He says you got to go out there and pay for stuff and squander your resources on things that can't do what I will do for you for free. Listen to me. And you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I mean, here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, God is gracious. He's given it away. And he has what you need. He has what will really satisfy you. But here's the thing. The whole book of Isaiah is about the fact that even though God kept pleading, kept calling, kept crying, the people wouldn't come. So what happens to them? They end up in captivity. They lose their land. They lose their inheritance. They lose their honor. They lose everything. Why? Because they are idol makers. They would rather have an idol that gives them the illusion of control than submit to the God who actually has what they need because they have to come to him on his terms. They don't want to come. You think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Right, let's go to Luke chapter 13. Here's the text for you. Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem. It's an amazing vision. Jesus is there. He's, he's come to the city. He knows he's coming to the city in order to die. He loves the people of Jerusalem enough that he is willing to lay down his life. He is willing to be crushed by the Father to take the penalty of their sins. He is willing to offer himself up as the lamb of sacrifice that they have been offering over and over and over again. He says, I'm coming to fulfill that and be that for you. You never have to offer another sacrifice. That's how willing he is. And he looks at the city and he says this. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. You would not come to me. God is far more willing to bless us than we are willing to be blessed because... We are idol makers, and you got to get that about yourself. You don't just have a sex problem. You have a God problem. you got a worship problem. That is the issue. I don't just have a struggle with sexual immorality because I'm a dude. Well, you know dudes struggle with sex. Dudes struggle with making an idol out of something other than God. Because we want something that we can control, that we can gain comfort from on our own terms. And every man who offers himself up to sexual sin to serve it believes it is actually serving 
him. That's how it starts. It's providing a comfort to him. It is providing an excitement to him. It is providing an escape from the stresses of his life to him. Without him having to have responsibility. And at the root of that, what we're saying is, God is not enough for me, so I'm going to forsake the fountain of living water, and I'm going to go dig a pit for myself, and I'll fill it up. And even though I know that I'm going to have to keep filling it up, that's what I'm going to do. Because I don't want to have to go to God. When I go to God, I've got to go to him on his terms. That is the human condition. That's all I want you to see. Is that's where we got to start, is our issue is a worship problem. Here's the second thing I want you to see, is that sexual immorality is a powerful God substitute. Sexual immorality is a powerful God substitute. Why? Why is this the case? We talked about it a little bit last week. Sexual immorality, sex in and of itself, is a powerful drive. We feel it physically. Our brains are created in such a way, hardwired in such a way, hormonally we are built in such a way as to be pursuers. We are created to be workers. We were created from the earth and for the earth. And so we were created to fill the earth and to subdue it. And if you take those two components, the idea is that's a command that was given to Adam as he was created from the earth and for the earth, the things that we struggle with are issues of productivity and power and of pursuit. That tends to be where it is. And when we're talking about sex, we are talking about pursuing energy. And in the fall, when you take someone who was created with that kind of engine and horsepower in that area, and then you corrupt them, as a result of the fall, we are corrupted and we are idol makers. They are going to take those things that seem most powerful to them, and those are the things that they're going to worship. It's why a lot of the forms of worship that men created over the years, when they created a cult to um, commune with some god, Often, sex was a part of worship. I don't know if you know that, but sex has been a common part of worship for all types of religions throughout the years. Now, today, we tend to not think of it that way because of the legacy of uh, monotheism and moralism. But if you go back and you visit and you look at ancient history and look at how people moved, uh, moved and worshiped throughout most of the years... Temple prostitution was commonplace. That's how you commune with a God. You go have sex with a woman who is possessed of or with a man who is possessed and embodied by that God. And you think, well, that's crazy. People don't live that way anymore. No, but they live that way a lot longer than people have been living the way that we're living. And so this idea, we don't see sex as an act of worship, but here's what I want you to say. A long time, for a long time, people did. And you need to understand that is wired up, we are wired up in such a way that that pursuing energy is a really powerful, easy, accessible God substitute. you got Proverbs 5 there in your notes. We're not going to read the entire thing. I would encourage you, you young men, I want to encourage you to memorize Proverbs chapter 5. You old men too, if your brain is still capable of memorizing. All right. You old dudes with inflexible brains, do it. Young men, for sure, you need to memorize this. 
But we all need to get this and have it burned into our heads. Tattoo, you want a big chest tattoo, this wouldn't be a bad one, all right? A lot of words. You got to be tough. Everybody know you're tough, but go ahead. I'd be okay with this one. Just got to do it backwards so when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, there it is for you, all right? Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 says this, The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now, the idea here is a woman, it's almost like a red light district kind of thing, that there's a part of town you need to avoid, you need to not go down her street, you need to not go in her area, because if you do, she knows how to play you. So you got to, my son, don't go to that part of town, you stay away from all of that, because that woman, she got magic powers that she will put it on you. And that is the truth. There are women who realize how they how vulnerable we are in this area and they leverage that and they have a lot of power over us and what solomon is saying here is he's saying you got to avoid her you got to run from her you can't go get around don't reason with her don't talk to her because she is powerful she has power over you you got to run from it you got to flee you got to get away but here's the problem the problem for us and our culture is that the forbidden woman in living in some part of town that you can avoid the forbidden woman is in your pocket right the forbidden woman is with you when you go on your coffee break and you go get a cup of coffee, and then you take a stop by the bathroom, you take her in your pocket into the bathroom stall with you. You should hear my son talk about when he was in basic training in the fall. It was heartbreaking to me. All these young men from all over the country who'd never had a cell phone, they get their first paycheck from the Army, and all these young enlisted men who never had enough money and I get emotional when I talk about it. They never had enough money to have a cell phone. And they get a cell phone, and the first thing they do is run to a bathroom stall and start downloading porn on it and masturbating. I'm not making this up. And I know that I'm talking to men who today are going to masturbate looking at pornography on their phones, maybe in their workplace. And if you're not going to do it today, because I said it out loud today, then you have done it recently. It is heartbreaking. And my heart grieves, not just for the men who are living with the forbidden woman in their pocket. My heart grieves not just for them, but for all of those who are depending on the energy that God entrusted to that man that is being squandered, and so that energy is not going to go to a place where it would be productive. Sexual immorality is a powerful God substitute. Now, how do you know, and this is where we gotta, you got to do some self-evaluation on all of this, how do you know, how do I know, if I'm enslaved to sexual immorality? How do, I, how do I know if I'm in a place that's dangerous? Well, here's what I would say to you. I'd say, first of all, we're all in a dangerous spot. Because we live in an age of unprecedented 
access. You men, you young men, my heart goes out to you, and I pray for you. Because you are growing up in an era of unprecedented access to the forbidden woman. She knows how to get in your mind, and she's getting in your mind to gain control over you to get your money. That's what's happening. And the devil, the spirit of the age, is in back of all of that. And he doesn't just want your money. He wants to make a mockery of you because you bear the image of God, the one that he hates. So he wants to twist and destroy the image of God. He wants to turn you into Gollum. He wants you to become an unrecognizable shade of what God created you to be. If you don't know who Gollum is, go watch Lord of the Rings. Read the books even better. It would help you. He wants you to fall in love with something that's not worthy of your affections until it consumes you and there's nothing left of you except the desiring of the thing that God has forbidden. So how do you know if you're on the pathway to that being a part of your life? Well, let's look at just a few things. First of all, look at Proverbs chapter 5, that's there for you, verses 21 to 23. This is how it concludes with a warning. It says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So God is watching. This is what I want you to know. God is watching. God is watching where you go. God is watching what you do. God knows the eyes of the Lord are upon you. Yahweh. The one whose name people tremble to speak, the one who is self-existent, the one from whom all life flows, is watching. His eyes are upon you, and the iniquities of the wicked will ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Here's the idea. He is ensnared. He is bound in cords and he cannot get free. He says, that's what happens to the wicked man. So if he is ensnared, if he's bound in cords, if he can't get free, then you've got to raise the question and say, well, is that it? am I wicked? Am I consumed by this? Look in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says here, he says, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. He says there is a choice before you, but you need to understand something. If you choose to obey the impulse to sin willfully then you make yourself a slave and you make sin your master. So you got to get that. So if we ask ourselves the question, am I enslaved to sexual sin? The question is, what are you obeying? Which voice do you obey? That's a biblical way to look at it from Romans chapter 6. Then here's a clinical way that you can look at it. There's a listing there of a clinical 
diagnosis. You've got the footnote of the website where there's some good information. Not a Christian organization, but just I found it to be a very helpful way of thinking about it from the mental health community because the secular mental health community is starting to realize that we are in somewhat of an unprecedented era. We've got a lot of young men who are beginning to deal with impotence, and there are studies that are being done understanding why would a man in his mid-20s be going to his doctor once he's gotten married, he's going to his doctor because he cannot maintain and sustain an erection during sexual intercourse with his wife. And there's nothing physically wrong with those men. It's not that they have a blood flow problem that's common to older guys, right? So you just go, well, what's actually going on? And disproportionately, the data is early, but what we're finding out is that these young men have grown up on pornography, and they have anesthetized their mind to what would be sexual stimulation because of the constant releasing of dopamine through the viewing of pornography over more than a decade by the time they're in their mid-twenties, that sex with another woman in a relationship with a woman cannot enable them to actually maintain and sustain sexual energy. I mean, that is heartbreaking, and that is for real. And so the secular community is trying to go, what, you know, what's going on here? How do we account for all of this? So you have people who are in the, in the secular community. And when I say secular, I don't use that word a lot, but you understand what I'm talking about. We have people in that community who are beginning to say, okay, pornography really is a scourge. There's something wrong with it. It's doing something unhealthy to people. You can read the clinical diagnosis for yourself and see how that relates to you. Here's what happens if we go back to a biblical framework, and we've got a slide for you. Is James chapter 1, there, James says this. He says, lust or desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to something. And the baby that it gives birth to is sin. And then sin, when it has conceived, and it has gone through its gestation period. We talked about this last week. It gives birth to death. And here's what happens. This is what being enslaved looks like. Whether you're dealing with pornography, whether you're dealing with um, a relationship that you are engaged in, I see this happen with men, and they run through this cycle. And what happens is they have a desire that is unmet, that is a legitimate desire. But they don't sanctify it, they don't use it the way God intended it for it to be used. And so as a result of that, they step outside the boundaries that God has designed for them and they willfully sin. They sin against their conscience, they sin against God's word, and they begin to cover and they begin to hide that. Then the consequence of that, inevitably, is death. It's a searing of the conscience, it's death in their intimacy and their other relationships with other people because they're carrying shame around. It's a death to their integrity because now they're living two lives. They've got this hidden life, and then they've got this public life that they live. It's a death to their productivity because the energy that God put within them, they need to be spending in other places. They don't really spend it in the places that God has designed for it to be spent. And so as a result of that, they don't have the energy to actually pursue a real woman because they're too busy having sex, fake sex, artificial sex with women who don't exist, or they're having a sexual relationship with someone other than their wife or they're having sex with a woman outside the boundaries of marriage, searing their conscience, 
and they're actually doing it in a self-gratifying way, not in a way that actually gives her what she's due. So the result of that is a death of intimacy, a death of integrity, a death of productivity, and then a death of self-confidence. And at the end of all of that, when they're alone and their soul is empty and they don't feel good about where they are, they start looking around for some comfort. And what comfort do you think they find that is readily available to them on their own terms? That same thing. And so the cycle of addiction begins. And they go back to the very thing that's destroying them because it provides them a comfort. It provides them a hit when they need it. And what happens is that cycle gets faster and faster and faster and greater and greater in momentum. And then at the end, if you look back up at the clinical definition, it says this. It says people are repetitively engaging in sexual behavior while disregarding the risk for physical or emotional harm to themselves or to others. And here's what I'll tell you. I have watched men who in every other way have good sense do the most absolutely foolish things. Rarely does anyone confess. Almost always people are caught. And rarely do they tell the truth when they are caught. They cop to a lesser crime. It's just usually what happens. Because it's too difficult to bring themselves to tell the whole truth. So they, they tell a part of the truth. And so I've got this whole little speech that I've worked out, sadly, because I've had this conversation so many times. And I say to them, now, before you say anything else and you start digging a deeper hole for yourself, here's what I want you to know. Nobody tells the truth the first time. Everybody lies. So whatever you're getting ready to say to me is a lie. So I want you to stop and think about it before you say it. And I want you to go ahead. This is your shot. This is your shot to begin to rebuild integrity. This is your shot to not be alone anymore, to have nothing left to hide. Left to hide. Is your shot with people who love you and people who want to help you. And most of the time, you know what people do? They lie to me anyway. Not just lie to me, lie to whoever's sitting in front of them. Because what's happened to them? They are enslaved. And they have been living in that cycle. And they've gotten so wrapped up in that cycle that they've lost all perspective on reality and truth. And they're just panicking. And they don't know what to do. So that's, that's a reality. Maybe a reality for some of us. So that's what enslavement looks like, somewhere on that continuum. But here's what I want to encourage you. Let's not go to the grossest forms of enslavement. Let's just say this. Who are you obeying? As I went through this talk, and as I look back over my life over the last few years, I realized there were some places where I had gotten comfortable because I once was enslaved in this area. Some of you know my story. I'm not going to make it about me, and we're not going to go into a bunch of detail on all of that. But I nearly lost everything in my mid-20s. My ordination was postponed. I was getting ready to be ordained to be a pastor. I had to sit with my wife and confess things to her. I had to break her heart. I had to watch my children offer comfort to her. And my kids get angry with me. Even just little boys, there's nothing like watching your oldest son stand with his fist clenched in front of you and say, what would you do to make my mommy cry? I know what that's like. And I once lived in that. This, this was me. And God did a great work in my life. But one of the things that I realized, even as I was preparing for this, and trying to really not just mail it in and say what I know and minister out of past grace, but to really have current grace, I'll tell you what I realized, is that there are some things over the last few years where I've just gotten slack 
where I have given some degree of mastery of myself back to this sin. Because I'm not living on the edge anymore. It's not whipping me. I don't wake up in the morning thinking about, oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with this sin? Somebody says the word sin. That's not the first thing that comes to my mind anymore. There were a long time where that was the case. From the time I was about 17 until the time I was about probably 34, 33. You say the word sin, this is what I thought about. That's not my case. not the case anymore. I'm 47. God has done a great work in my life. But what I realized is I got work to do. And there's still a measure of enslavement that I'm willing to live with. So there's some steps that I had to take in order to have integrity. Some things I had to talk to my wife about. Some things I had to acknowledge. Some things I've had to talk to my boss about. So let's look at it this way. Let me just give you a few things. And I know some of you, before you send me the emails this week, you're going to talk about, where's the gospel? Where's the gospel? I mean, there's a little bit of it in this talk, but there ain't a lot, because that ain't really, I'm going to give you some. I'm going to encourage you. God says come, right? That's why I did that at the beginning. God's like, I told you God's gracious, right? You don't need to be afraid to come to God. You need to be afraid to stay where you are. I'm more interested in scaring you this week, all right? So you can go ahead and write the email anyway, but I'm going to tell you, I already thought about it. I'm probably not going to listen to you. Consequences, all right? I'll answer to Jesus for what I say and don't say, all right? You take comfort in that. Maybe he'll spank me. Consequences. Here are the consequences. First of all, according to Proverbs chapter 5, this is a rule, it's a law, a man who gives himself over to the forbidden woman, will squander his honor. You squander your honor. The respect that you've earned and the position that you hold in the lives of other people, you will forfeit. Your wife will not respect you. Another woman will not find you honorable, a worthy woman. Your children will not come to you and seek your counsel. Because you have squandered the honor of the position that you held. Just telling you, it's a rule, it's a law. You play with this sin, you will squander your honor. I have watched it happen. I have watched women, I have sat in the room this year with women who held their husbands in high esteem and honor and regard. And I have watched him take more than a decade of earning her honor and respect and regard and doing lots of worthy things. And I have watched her discover that it was all a sham and a lie because during that period of time, he was living a double life and he lacked integrity. And I've watched the destruction that it brings on that woman as she tries to think, well, was any of the good stuff real? And am I crazy? And then I've watched that man realize that I just wasted. I don't know that I'll ever be able to gain all of that back. And he may not. Jesus will love him, and Jesus will receive him back. But he has destroyed something. Now, God can build something on the other side of that, but I've watched him realize, oh, my goodness, I've got a decade of work ahead of me. Maybe, if she gives me the chance. You squander your honor. Here's the second thing. You squander your strength on strangers. If you look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 10, He says, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. 
Then look at verses 15 and 16. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Talking about, go find your own wife and delight in her. And then he says in verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, your streams of water in the streets. The idea is this energy that God has put within you, should you just scatter it indiscriminately? Because here's the thing. That strength was given to you to be fruitful and productive. And when you take what God entrusted to you and you don't run it into the place that God designed for it to go, you scatter it around. Here's what happens is it isn't just that you miss some of the benefits of what you could have known. But it's that there are generational consequences called that energy had a role, it had a place that God had designed it for. And when you scatter it everywhere else indiscriminately and you bleed it off, then it's not going to the place that God designed for it. And there are generational consequences of that. We spend a lot of our time with our young men and young women who feel insecure, who don't trust authority, and one of the primary reasons, and they don't know it, why they feel that way is because the home they grew up in, they had a father who was not stewarding his sexual energy properly. And so as a result of that, they grew up in a home that lacked the kind of energy that it needed to have, and a woman who didn't have the honor and respect for her husband, and a man who had a guilty conscience, so he didn't lead in the ways that he needed to lead in his home because he always felt guilty because he wasn't living a life of integrity. And his strength is being scattered on strangers and even in some of those places I get the benefit of getting to be like a second father and a bunch of people viewing me and giving me the honor that they should give to their father but they couldn't give it to their father and so strangers get the honor that he deserved that's part of what's going on there the third thing you will end your life in regret and public disgrace You'll end your life in in regret and public disgrace. Look at verses 12 to 14. You say, he says, this is what you're going to say. He says, you're going to get to the end of your life. If you keep allowing this sin to be your master, you keep visiting the forbidden woman. You keep taking her in your pocket with you. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This is what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, that is what you are going to say at the end of your life if you continue to give the forbidden woman a place in your life. So I would not be faithful to you, men, as your pastor if I did not tell you these things. Because the world is painting a different picture for you. Her lips drip with honey. Her lips drip with honey. But in her mouth is an open grave. So let me just give you a few things. You got some passages of scripture here. I want to talk about a path out. So, how do we break that cycle? And here's what I'm going to tell you. This is, not, this, this is not going to begin primarily with the heart. This is going to begin primarily with your actions. That's where it's going to start. We're going to have to disrupt the pattern of sin in your life. 
So I've sat with men who've become convinced that the woman that they are having an affair with is their soulmate. I've had them say those words to me a bunch of times. And this is where the turning point comes in their life, is when I say to them, with another elder usually, why don't you hand me your phone? I need your phone. And they're like, well, why do you need my phone? I said, because I want you to put her phone number in, and I want you to call her, and then you're going to say, you're going to hand me the phone, and when she answers the phone and she thinks it's you, it's going to be your pastor. And I'm going to tell her that today you're getting a new phone number and she's not going to have it. And that y'all can never speak to each other again. And that everything is known. And I'm going to tell you the turning point in that man's life is whether or not he hands me the phone. That's the turning point. He don't need to pray about it. What his heart thinks, what his heart feels is irrelevant. That is the deciding moment in his life is whether or not he hands me the phone. That's the deciding moment up to that point. And if he doesn't hand me that phone that day, his chances of that thing ever being put back together almost always evaporate. Not always. But he's got to move then. He's got to repent then when he's got an opportunity. Because the cords of death have wrapped themselves around him. And he's become so confused that he thinks his greatest blessing is actually something that's a curse to him. So he doesn't need to think. He need, doesn't need to pray. He needs to act. And so I'm going to give you some things, some very simple baseline things that you can act on. The heart gets dealt with in the process of the actions. The gospel gets applied in the context of what's going on. But if you are enslaved... You need somebody to cut the cords and to drag you out. You don't need to think. You don't need to pray. You need help in the moment. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's where the path out begins. The path out begins with a confession of sin. And your confession needs to be as public as the consequences of your sin are. I'm not talking about confessing to God. Because if you're ensnared in this and you're a Christian... You've confessed to God a million times, God, I'm so sorry, I'll never do this again. God, I'm so sorry. Please take it away. Please take it away. Please take it away. You've done that. I've done that. We've done that. We've all done that. All right? That's not what I'm talking about when I say confession. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. When I say confession, what I mean is it's going to take you a long time if you're ensnared to fully confess, to say what God says about your sin, to see it the same way God sees it. That's what confession means. But for you, what I'm talking about is you're going to have to go find somebody who is spiritually mature, and we got a list of phone numbers and email addresses for pastors on your campus in your notes, and I'm going to tell you, you need to contact them before you leave the room today. Just like the writer to Hebrews says, he says, Today, if you would hear my voice, don't harden yourself, your heart as the people in the rebellion did. He's talking about a historic rebellion in the Old Testament. So here's what I'm saying to you. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to get clean. Today is the day that life is offered to you. Today is the day for you to call. There is no reason not to. We have qualified people. You don't have to think about who's my accountability partner. I can't go tell my wife. I can't go tell my fiance. I can't go tell my parents. You don't have to think about any of that right now. Here's what I'm going to tell you is right now, before you leave the room, you can contact somebody and say, I need help. I am in sin. That may be the best confession that you can get. And then they will help you. 
So today, confession. And that process of confession is going to take time, and it's going to deepen, and it's going to grow, and you're going to find life in it. Here's the second thing. Repentance. I'm not going to read the entire text for you, but 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10 is there, and here's what I'm going to warn you. There are two types of sorrow that we tend to have when we come to this issue. And Paul talks about it. There are two types of sorrow, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And some of you, as you're listening to me, you're sorry right now. You are sad. Your heart is overcome with grief. Your heart is up in your throat right now. And, that, and you, you feel terrible and you're sad. Here's what I want to caution you is. Feeling sad is not necessarily a precursor to repentance. Feeling sad can be a form of self-pity. It can be sorrow. It can mean just another expression of how much I love myself. And I love myself so much that now Bill said there are all these consequences. I don't want to experience any of those consequences. And so I'm going to go hide and try to deal with this privately. What I can tell you is that's worldly sorrow. That's not a sign of repentance at all. And if you act on that kind of worldly sorrow, then I can tell you where it's going to end. Paul says at the end, there is a kind of sorrow... Um, <clears throat> he says, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And so don't give in to that. Don't be afraid of what you're going to lose. Because coming to Jesus, you're going to gain everything. You're not going to lose. You've already lost if you're ensnared in sin. And you're only going to lose more. Your chance is to come to him now. Because remember, go back to the beginning. He says, come without money and without costs. And I will give you what you need. Come to the fountain of living water. Godly sorrow recognizes, oh my gosh, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done to God. Look at what I've done to those who are around me. And it comes to God in hope. It says, I'm sorry for where I've been. I want something better. And that sorrow drives you towards God in real repentance. So that's a way for you to think that will help you. And then here's... The last thing is restoration. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says this. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. That's a good word for us. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Here's what I would say to you. Is that there is a process of restoration. As you confess and as you begin to turn in sorrow from your sin and in hope towards Jesus, that he will forgive your sins, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and give you the life that your heart craves and longs for, but that you can't find in your sin. There's a process of restoration that takes place. But it's a process, and it takes time, and it involves community. This is what I'm saying. This is why you see confession so important. You can't be restored unless you first confess and give other people the opportunity to participate in your restoration. You don't restore yourself. It's not a private exercise. It's a public exercise. Public insofar as it needs to be, meaning other people, the appropriate people, are involved in that. You don't restore yourself. Others restore you. And others aren't required to immediately trust you. You are required to earn their trust. That's part of what the process is. 
is putting yourself at their disposal. And I see this all the time. This is what I want to tell you. Is that um, it takes time. But here's my word for you. Is that you have time. You have time. You're going to continue to live. And there's hope for you. God has you here. God has you in a place where people will speak clearly to you, where people will love you. And for some of you, you listen to this and you say, I don't know why Bill's all worked up about it. I'll tell you why I'm worked up about it. It's because this is killing us as a culture. And it's severing the power of our church. we got men in our church who God wants to use, who he can't use because they're so ensnared in this sin. And if you're not one of those men, then you are one of those men who has the responsibility. You're one of those men that Galatians chapter 6 says, those of you who are godly should restore such a one with humility and with gentleness. you got a job to do. We all have a job to do as a community. To love one another, to receive one another, to help one another get put back together so that we have a community of men who are not scattering their energy abroad, but who are focusing their energy in the places that it needs to go. Where we have young men who know how to pursue godly young women. We we got godly young women who don't have young men who know how to healthily pursue them because the young men are so guilty And they've scattered so much of their energy abroad that they can't really pursue a powerful woman because they know they don't have the stuff left to do it because pornography and masturbation has bled off their energy. And we got to help them. We have to help them. All of us. It's our job as a community. And so whatever movement needs to look like for you, if movement needs to look like for you, restoration of a brother, then you need to get in the game and start restoring some men and working with them to help them get their life back together, asking good questions, engaging them. If movement for you looks like this morning, today, calling someone and saying, I need help, then we got to do that. we got to move. None of us get to sit still. we all got to move. We have a job to do. To reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously with ourselves first. For some of you, the most courageous act of leadership that you will ever do is you taking responsibility for your sexual sin right now. Today is the day for you. May God give you grace. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, there's there's a lot to absorb. I pray that you would overcome any weaknesses in me as a speaker. And I pray that the evil one who wants to come now and steal the kernel of truth that was most important for men that I'm talking to, I want to pray that you would keep him away. I want to pray that your spirit would come and that you would work in our hearts And that you would move us to fight for purity and the power of grace. You call us. You plead with us to come. And you give us warnings about the consequences of if we don't come. But Lord, I pray you'd help us to move in fear and in hope. Fear of our sin and hope because of your grace. And the truth is that most of us put our hope in our sin, or many of us put our hope in our sin, and we fear you. 
God, I pray that you would move us out of that. For your name's sake. Amen.